today I'm going to read from uh, basically the whole chapter of John 11. Uh, so if you guys have your Bibles, you can uh, bring them out at this time. Um, hold on a second. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was at. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I... I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in her house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, when now, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of, on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Uh, this is the word of the Lord for this morning. Uh, I just wanted to pray before Jay comes up here to preach. Um, God, this, this is your word. This is your church. Um, I ask today that through this word, uh, you speak to, to each one of us. Um, even in death, you, you pronounce life. Even through the things that we go through, um, you glorify yourself. I just uh, pray that you make your word known to us, that is sure deep down into our souls, and uh, that you transform each one of us. Thank you. Thank you for this church. And again, I thank you for the word that even today is living and active. Amen. Yeah, pretty much everyone. Uh, I didn't think it would be a strange or unusual passage, so I didn't choose this passage because I thought that it would be unfamiliar to you, so I'd have something new to share. But I did want to bring something out that I'm not sure we always get from this passage. So we all agree that we're not saved by our works, but by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Does everybody agree with that? Okay. What does that mean? Because often in Christian circles, I see people behave as though it meant keeping the rules. I see people acting as though what really counts is our behavior according to a set of beliefs and a set of standards of behavior. And not necessarily in terms of what it really means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But this story, as dramatic as it is in terms of what happens, has several relationships involved. And I want to focus on these relationships as a picture, as a mirror, for us to look at ourselves and see how we relate to Jesus Christ and how he then relates to us. There's a back and forth here that I think is very important to notice and to bring out. So 
Dan's already done the heavy, heavy lifting. That's a, a long passage. There's a lot in there, and I don't want to run too long, but let's just ask God's Spirit to bring us all together in understanding and in receiving the benefit that he has for us from the passage. Lord Jesus, we do look to you. And because we believe that we each have a relationship with you, would you please show us what that means? Would you please open our eyes? Would you hold up the mirror of your word to each of us, to our lives, and let us see ourselves, but most importantly, let us see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story starts out, Jesus is away from Bethany, but he's already been mentioned in connection with this family. You guys probably remember the story from Luke where Jesus is visiting Bethany. He's staying in Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus's house, which is automatically kind of unusual because normally you don't have siblings sharing the household like that. Normally the, the son would inherit a house of his parents and we don't hear anything about their parents. And the daughters would be married off into other households. But we don't hear anything about Lazarus having a wife. And both of his sisters are with him. So there's something curious going on there. I think it's worth noticing. It's hard to pin these things down exactly what they mean. Like we can't be dogmatic about what this means and say, well, this is exactly what happened. But some interesting things suggest themselves. Like probably their parents are, are gone have died. And uh, Lazarus has the house and his sisters are living with him, which may mean like that Martha was married. I mean, she's a very capable person. She seems like somebody who has been running a household. So she might have been caring for the household when her parents were ailing and she's just carried that role over. Or it might be that she was married and her husband has died. When I noticed that, I wonder if when Jesus was telling us the story, well, actually not a story, but when he's speaking to the Pharisees and says, you pray long prayers, but then you scheme to take away the house of a widow. I wonder if he might be talking about Martha. Don't know, and it doesn't really matter. But I want you to, to allow yourself to be open to the relationships that the Holy Spirit might suggest to you from this passage. And then in that previous story that Luke tells us, Martha is distracted with serving. She's bustling about the household, taking care of everybody. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, which is an unusual place for a woman to sit in that culture at that time. That's a place of being instructed in things that women weren't supposed to worry about. So Mary seems to me kind of a free spirit. In fact, like my mental picture of Mary is kind of like Maria from The Sound of Music. How do you solve a problem like Maria? You know, how do you hold a moonbeam in your hand or whatever? I, can't, I don't remember the words of the song, but it's like somebody who's very free-spirited and not necessarily following the rules. And because she didn't follow the rules, it appears, because of another passage that Luke has, combined with what, what John says here, that Mary had kind of a bad reputation. She might have kind of been a wild child or seemed to be, at least to the established people. Because when Luke records the thing that uh, John mentions here, John just says, Mary is that woman that anointed the Lord with, with a, an expensive ointment and, and wiped his feet with her hair. And uh, 
when Luke records that, this is in the house of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee is watching this and thinking, if this man Jesus knew what kind of a woman that was, he wouldn't permit her to touch him. And Luke doesn't identify that as Mary, but John does identify that person as Mary. So it kind of makes it seem like maybe she had a reputation at least in the, the established circles, in the respectable, among the respectable people. Anyway, however all that works, these people know that Jesus loves them. And Mary has been enjoying Jesus' teaching and probably talking about it. So his teaching has become part of her identity. And then they face a crisis. Lazarus becomes ill. Lazarus is the only male in the household. In a first century Palestine, that puts the women at risk. So they immediately send for Jesus because Jesus has been going around the whole country healing people. And they know that he loves them. And they send for Jesus, and then what happens? When Jesus gets the word that Lazarus is ill, because he loves them, he stays two days longer in the place that he was. He stays two days longer. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? You've probably heard this before, but it's going to become more and more significant as we look at the relationships between Jesus and these people. So after a couple of days, Jesus says, we're going to Bethany. And uh, the disciples are confused because they think that Jesus is where he is, which is probably across the Jordan River. They think he's there to avoid the Jews because the Jews were plotting to kill him and they knew it. And, and that's why the, the disciples, who honestly never quite get it, they never quite get what Jesus is up to. But does that stop Jesus from loving them and from them following? It really doesn't. I mean, it causes them some turbulence along the way. It provides some excellent teaching moments, but it does not stop Jesus from loving them. The fact that they don't get it, the fact that their understanding does not align up with his agenda. So they warn him about going back to Judea, and he says, we're going back to wake up Lazarus. But that doesn't help them, because there's, they cannot get past their own perspective. So they say, well, if he's asleep, that means he's getting better. He's going to get well. So why go wake him up? Jesus says then plainly, like from their frame of reference, Lazarus has died. And Jesus doesn't speak of Lazarus as having died before. And he often does not speak of people who we would see who would be clinically declared dead as dead. He says they're asleep. Like when Jesus was called to the house of Jairus, you remember the story where Jesus raised the little girl? Well, when Jesus is brought there, uh, he speaks to the father, comfort. And he says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. But all of the people around there who had seen her, who knew what the score was you know, firsthand, they laughed him to scorn. Jesus didn't respond to that, but he went in. And he raised that little girl. He said, little girl, get up. And she did, right? So Jesus doesn't see things exactly the same way we do. He operates in a very counterintuitive way. And 
those are demonstrations of his power. So when Jesus tells the disciples he's going back to Judea, he also says, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe because they still don't get it. Now, this is actually the third time that Jesus has raised someone from the dead. He raised a widow's son on the road to this uh, Galilean town called Nain, and he raised Jairus' daughter, and now it's Lazarus. And I think that gives us a hint about why Jesus waited. He wants to make it very, very clear that this is not just a resuscitation, that this is not just somebody who was gravely ill and asleep, but they were actually dead. He wants to underscore that because on the first two occasions, they didn't get it. And I'm sure that the talk among the disciples and the talk among the people who had witnessed these, these miracles was that, oh, well, they were just uh, like in a coma. And Jesus came along at the right time and woke them up. And don't we tend to do that sometimes? When God provides a deliverance for us, we're tempted to say, oh, oh, well, it wasn't as bad as I thought. It, it worked out fine. Thanks anyway, God, when he had actually delivered us. And he, we know that he delivers us in the context of a personal relationship. So our subjective experience is fully held by Jesus Christ. He knows how we feel about things. He knows how we see things and how we see things regardless of the things we can't see and then reinterpret later, like those cases where we see a, a difficult situation and we can't imagine a way out of it and we're praying and we're praying. And then when the deliverance comes, it's like the problem wasn't even what we thought. We're tempted to think, oh, God didn't really do anything. It just wasn't as bad as I thought. I just thought it was worse than it was. The truth is, it's always worse than we think. And I think that this story highlights that. So Jesus goes to Judea. He goes to Bethany. And the disciples, reluctantly, like Thomas called the twin. What's the other name for that, Thomas? Yeah, I don't mean the Greek name. I mean... The English name, Doubting Thomas, exactly. <laughs> so that's the same guy. So later, he's called Doubting Thomas because he won't believe in Jesus Christ after Jesus has risen until he sees the wounds, until he knows that that really is Jesus Christ. But here he says, well, let's go with him and die with him. I mean, he's all in. He's not holding back, but he still doesn't believe we need to hold that mirror up to ourselves as well. Because when we take a stand for Jesus Christ, sometimes, like me, since I was a young boy, I have been willing to die for my faith. Now, when I'm faced with somebody pointing a gun at my head or, or something worse, like getting ready to behead me or something like that, who knows if I might cave? Nobody will know until I face that. But I have been intending to be willing to die for Jesus since then. In fact, I've always thought it's a heck of a lot easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. Because I know I'm going to make mistakes. And if it was about me towing the line, if it was about me being able to live up to his standards, I'm sunk. And I have known that for a long time. But I didn't really realize that he's already taken that into account or at least the depth of the way that he's taken it into account. And so I've put a lot of unnecessary pressure on myself 
to perform, to conform, to live up to the standards that he has for us. And that is not the point at all. The point is that if he is living in me, I will do what, what he wants, even when I make mistakes, and even when you guys can clearly see that I'm a failure, that I'm a mess up. He can still be glorified. So the disciples, despite the fact that they don't get it, they're following. They're in. So they go to, with Jesus. And when he draws near Bethany, Martha hears it, and she hurries out to meet him. When she comes out, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, as we find out later, how long has Lazarus been in the tomb? Four days. And how many days did Jesus linger in the place that he was before he came to them? That's what I mean, that it's always worse than we think. If Jesus had come immediately, if he had responded the way they wanted, and he had dropped everything and marched right up to Bethany, Lazarus would have been in the, in the tomb two days when he got there. It was already too late when they sent for Jesus from a human perspective. But was Jesus worried about it? Apparently not. He didn't hustle frantically to Bethany to try not to miss the deadline. deadline. He actually knew what he was doing, and he wanted people to know what he was up to, right? So we can have that same confidence today, but most often we don't because we think we understand how it is supposed to go. Like Martha said, Lord, if you had just been here, he would not have died. But then she doesn't stop there. She says, yet even now, I know that whatever you ask of the Father, he will give you. She still has a heart of faith, despite the bleak circumstances she is going through. She still has a response of faith that opens her eyes to see something that only the Holy Spirit can show people. Because remember, well, okay, because then Jesus tells her, your brother will rise. And she says, yes, Lord, I know. Because they're part of that segment of, of Judaism that believes in the resurrection. And so she says, yes, I know. He will rise in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says something out of the blue. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he die, he will live. And then he says, do you believe? And she says, yes. I believe that you are the Christ who is coming into the world. That information is the same information that Jesus told Peter did not come from flesh and blood, but only by his spirit when Peter makes that good confession, which is the first time the disciples had heard that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one sent by God that he is, in fact, the Son of God. So she gets it because her eyes of faith allow her to see, and she gets a new, rare, deep, refreshing, and encouraging understanding of who Jesus is because her eyes of faith are not darkened.
Now, when this happens, Mary had stayed in the house. You remember that? Does that seem unusual to anybody else? So Mary is the one who was sitting at Jesus' feet on the prior occasion when Jesus was in Bethany. Mary is the one who wanted to hear everything that Jesus said. That she stepped out of the normal place for a woman, went into a, an unusual, sort of presumptuous role of being in there while Jesus was talking and teaching. And yet, when they hear that Jesus is approaching, she stays in the house. She doesn't come to meet him. But Martha sends to her and says, the master is here and he's asking for you. And Mary gets up quickly and hurries out. I don't know what was in her mind. I don't know if it was eager expectation and anticipation, but I don't think so. Mary comes up. She falls down before him. And she says the same thing that Martha does. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But she stops there. I believe that she's wounded in her heart. She thought that Jesus cared so much that he would not let anything bad happen to them. And she had been talking about Jesus to other people. Her identity was wrapped up in that relationship. And this tragedy has happened to her and her family. And she cannot make sense of it. And she now doesn't know what to think. And she's pulled back from him in fear. So she's on the ground before him. She honors him, but she doesn't know what to do. She just says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus doesn't share with her any cosmic truths of his divine nature. He sees her, it says weeping in the ESV, but that Greek word is actually crying out. It can be loud sobs, it can be like loud wailing, but it's, it's vocal and outward and loud. She is torn. And the Jews all around her, because that was the custom of the day, when somebody died, People like sort of professionals even would come along and make a wailing so that everybody knows how sad this is that this person has passed. And these Jews who have come out to comfort Martha and Mary are joining in this wailing and making it loud so that they're trying to sort of help and amplify the grief that Mary is experiencing. And when Jesus looks around at this, He's deeply moved. Now, this word is, is interesting. It's used five times in the New Testament. And it literally means like to snort with anger, <laughs> with indignation. So when Jesus looks around at this manifestation of grief, this total separation from confidence in him through faith and, and, and the pain that that causes... He has this visceral reaction. Now, the other places where this are, is used, this word is used, are two occasions where Jesus was healing someone. So on one occasion, Jesus healed a leper and told him, don't tell anybody. And it says, like it's translated in English, usually he strictly charged them or he sternly warned them not to make this known. And it's that same word, like, 
don't talk about it. But you guys remember that story, don't you? What did they do? They talked about it. There was another time where, where he gave sight to a blind man and he told him, <laughs> don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody. And what did they do? They talked about it so much that Jesus couldn't even go into towns throughout Galilee because crowds are coming out to him. So he is out, far out in the, the weeds, way out in the wilderness, because anytime he gets close to a town, he is mobbed because of what these people are talking about. And they're talking about stuff that they don't even know. And Jesus knows that, and his purpose is not to make a name for himself. In fact, we are told that he came, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divine attributes in the way the New King James and King James translated that is he made himself of no reputation. That's the expression of the character of Jesus Christ. He's not looking for a bunch of crowds to follow him. He knows what his purpose is, but he is consistently moved with compassion so when those crowds come out to him, what does he do? Does he get mad at them and send them away? No. He's compassionate and gracious. He's always stirred by compassion. And he heals them. He feeds them. He teaches them. He gives them everything that they need every time, even though it doesn't really fit his plan. It doesn't really fit his purpose. But he does that. And it does fit the God, God's Father God's eternal and overall purpose because it demonstrates a lot of things for us that we need to know about Jesus. So here's Mary, collapsed in front of Jesus. And he looks around at the grief, and he's indignant. And he's also deeply moved in his soul. Now, there are a lot of ways to take that, and, and it has been remarked, and I don't think that it's wrong. I just think there's more than one way to take this. It's been remarked that uh, Jesus was deeply stirred because death is not a design part of creation. Death came into the world because of sin in the Garden of Eden, and that it wasn't part of the design of God. And so he's deeply stirred at that. Now, that doesn't move me as much in this particular context because I know that Jesus has faced death before. Not only the two other people that he raised from the dead, but Jesus didn't have a, a, an earthly father from the time that he was young. We don't know how old, but Joseph has not been on the picture for a long time. And he was a just man, as we're told in Luke, so I think he had died. So Jesus had faced the death of the father of the household, and that put them all into a difficult situation. And maybe Jesus, from the time that he was maybe 15 or 16 until he was 30, was working in the carpenter shop to take Joseph's place. But however that exactly works out, we're not told. That's conjecture. You don't have to accept that. But the reality is that Jesus was aware of death, had been. However, he sees how we blind ourselves to the truth by not being willing, by not being ready to believe him, to acknowledge who he is and trust in his nature, in his character, not just in the words of the Bible, because they had the Old Testament, not just in the words that Jesus said at the time, but to trust in his character, in his unfailing compassion and love for them. So he says, where have you laid him? They say, Lord, come and see. Oh, before they go, 
when Jesus sees this grief and is deeply moved after being indignant, then he weeps. I think he was weeping with Mary. His, these were silent tears. It's a different word than the, the crying out that Mary and the Jews were doing. So he feels what she feels, whether she realizes it or not. She may not even look up. She may not, not have noticed, but others there did. John, particularly, who wrote this gospel, noticed. And he records that Jesus wept. And then Jesus says, you know, where have you laid him? But after Jesus weeps, the crowd standing around says, see how he loved him? Couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? See, they don't, they don't get it either. That, that's us. We don't get it because we, we can't really interpret things. We can't make sense of things beyond, so totally beyond our experience. And Jesus is about to do something amazing. The thing is, Jesus is about to do something amazing today. Jesus is about to do something amazing in your life. And if you have the eyes of faith to see it, you will see it, and you'll be ready for it. And you'll be able to respond maybe like Martha did, with your heart ready to receive a new insight about the character of Jesus Christ. You may receive a, a, an amazing deliverance, whether it's in work or family or health, anything that affects you. You may receive a deliverance from God in some way like that. But you'll only receive it as a, an amazing deliverance from God if your heart is open and ready to receive it that way. Otherwise, you'll reinterpret it as, oh, something that was just going to happen and kind of lucky that it happened. And not that you got it from him because he loves you. That's what your eyes of faith help you to see. So when, when the people standing around, the Jews, say, oh, see how he loved him? But some of them said, well, couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus is again in that same emotional state. He's again indignant because of their unbelief. So he goes to the tomb, and that's where we find out that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Martha, who had received this new revelation of who Jesus is, warns him, oh, I don't think you want to open that, Lord. There's going to be an odor because he's been in there four days. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you'll see the glory of God? And then we come to another relationship in here. Jesus' relationship with Lazarus doesn't get a whole lot of airtime up to this point. But then, with the, the rock rolled away from the cover of the tomb, then Jesus speaks to Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out with his hands bound and his feet He comes out, even though he had died. See, if Jesus gives a command, we can obey. Remember, this is not just a mental exercise when we say things like, we were dead in our trespasses and sins before he brought him to us to himself. That's a reality. We... We cannot 
apprehend who Jesus is apart from his work in us. And so if you have unbelieving family or friends or acquaintances and you're concerned about them, you are not going to be able to argue them into the kingdom of heaven. It's not apprehended as an intellectual exercise. It's a work of God in our hearts. And so pray for them. Do the same thing that Mary and Martha did in the beginning of this passage. They sent for Jesus. And we can do that just by praying wherever we are at whatever time. We can ask Jesus for help, for intervention. And he hears. And he will respond, maybe not at the time we would like him to. Maybe not in the way that we think makes the most sense. But if we trust him, he will respond. So if you have an unbelieving family member or friend or acquaintance and you're concerned about them, don't try to argue them into the kingdom. Pray for them and watch. See what God does. You will be amazed. Just like everybody there. The man who had died came out. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. So if Jesus gives us a command, and now when I say, like, don't try to argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven, and yet if you feel the Holy Spirit has told you to speak to this person, do it. Because even though you may be absolutely certain that you're going to get a rebuff, that they will not be able to hear what you're saying and they don't want to, if you feel the Holy Spirit is telling you to do something, do it even if it doesn't make any sense, and you'll be able to. When Jesus gives a command, the person he gives the command to can obey. It will work that way. So even if you're dead and he says, come here, you'll be able to come. Even if he says to a woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, I believe she was freed from power and the pattern of sexual sin in her life at that point, and she could walk free. It doesn't mean that she never sinned again, but she was freed from that, I think, when Jesus spoke those words to her, and she had the will to obey. When Jesus gives a command, it's not meaningless, and it does not depend upon our power to accomplish it. It's because who he is, that same authority that spoke creation into existence, will tell us what to do. And if we are willing to obey, it'll do what he wants to happen. And just like the people in this story, uh, their example shows us, it may not be the way we thought it was going to go. It may not look like what we thought. So we should avoid being presumptuous as much as we're able. But even if we become presumptuous, he's going to lead us closer and closer to himself in the process of our attempted obedience. So we left Mary there on the ground when Jesus walked to the tomb. We don't know what was going through her mind. She might not have been able to follow. She might have been so tied up in her grief that she didn't even see when Lazarus came out of the tomb. But her story is not done. The chapter moves on to the reaction of the Jews to Jesus, and I didn't want to go into that. But I did need to mention that in chapter 12, Jesus is again in Bethany. So because of the Jews' reaction, Jesus leaves Bethany after Lazarus is raised. 
And he goes back to a couple of different places that it records away from this area of Judea. But six days before the Passover, Jesus returns to Bethany, and he's at a feast in the house of a Pharisee named Simon the leper. So apparently, he's been healed because nobody goes to the house where somebody is actually suffering from leprosy. So at that feast, Mary comes in with a jar of ointment worth 300 denarii, and a denarii is a day's wages. So it's like almost a year's wages what this ointment, this perfume is worth. And Mary comes in and weeping anoints Jesus with it. So we see that no matter what state she was in, in her disappointment at Lazarus's death, she knows Jesus loves her. And from the bottom most recesses of her heart, she's loving him back. And she's doing it in a way that is divinely and, and demonstrably prophetic of his death. Even though she probably doesn't know that, doesn't understand that, she is lining up with God's purposes in a deep, expensive, and dramatic way. That is the heart that leads us to amazing acts of obedience that accomplish God's purposes that could not otherwise happen. So she didn't stay in her unbelief. And we won't. God's purpose is to bring us to himself, to bring us to Jesus Christ. And whichever path we take, the path of, of a prompt willingness to obey and having our eyes open further, the path of being dead and being called out of our tomb, the path of blindly and simply following along like the disciples did at the risk of their lives, or the path of Mary where we, we stumble at a point and cannot believe, and yet he still delivers us in a way that pierces our heart right through. And then we yield to him. Then we surrender all in a way that glorifies God and that satisfies our soul in the deepest, most beautiful way. So I don't know where you're at, but Jesus does. And Jesus is going to meet you and talk with you in the way that you can accept. So the common element in all these relationships is him. And he relates to us in different ways. Now, did you get uh, the elements for communion when you came in? We're going to stop now and share in the life and the body of Jesus Christ. And this is a, an ordinance. This is something that Jesus gave us to do. He told us to do this. And as often as we do it, to do it in remembrance of him. And so Mary's worship of Jesus with the expensive ointment was six days before the Passover. And two days before the Passover, they had a meal together. The Seder that it is like, sort of like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something for us, but it's where people, families are normally together. And Jesus is together with his disciples. And he said, 
I have longed, I have deeply desired to share this meal with you guys. And then through the meal, there's a place where there is bread that's part of the meal that is striped and pierced in the tradition of the Jews. And he took that bread and he held it up and he said, this bread is my body that is broken for you. Take it and eat. And in the same way, after the supper, there was a traditional cup of wine that was served. And he took that cup and he held it up and said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant. It is my blood shed for you for the remission of your sins. Take it and drink. And he told them, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, of who I am. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the price that you have paid for our salvation. We thank you for the way that you love each one of us and that you know each one of us as different as we all are. And we behold you so dimly, it's hard for us sometimes to believe that you really know who we are. We think that you want us to live up to the standard of our fellow believers, that you want us to be more like them. But Lord, we accept that you want us to know you, to yield to you, to obey you. Please, by your Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Receive us and help us to lay our life down before you. In Jesus' name, amen.